Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Today, our religious freedom topic uh, really sounds more in free speech, I think, but it has to do with new rules for lawyers. Not something that may catch your imagination normally, but uh, we'll see. Our guest is Eugene Volokh, professor of First Amendment law at uh, UCLA here in California, publisher of the blog The Volokh Conspiracy, formerly at The Washington Post and now at Reason Magazine. Professor Volokh, thanks for joining us on Freedom's Ring today. Always a great pleasure. So the American Bar Association adopted this model rule, 8.4G. I guess uh, not too many states have, uh, have followed suit as yet. But tell us, first of all, what, uh, how does this rule differ from prior rules? What's the controversy all about? Sure. So historically, state uh, bars have tried to restrict uh, lawyer speech in uh, various areas, usually having to do with speech that's said to be prejudicial to the administration of justice. There's some controversy about that, but it's pretty clear that some such speech can be restricted. In the courtroom is a classic example, right? You can't just stand up as a lawyer or as a party in the courtroom and start orating because that interferes with the administration of justice. Sure. Likewise, even outside the courtroom, courts might uh, try to rein in kind of verbal abuse, let's say, during depositions or between the parties or between the lawyers. Or but trying a case kind, in the press, right? That's right. That is a separate category of restriction, and there's been a Supreme Court case on that subject that actually lawyers do have pretty broad authority to talk about a case in the press, but that can be limited if uh, uh, their speech uh, uh, seriously risks prejudicing the jury. Uh, sure. So it's a somewhat different kind of approach. There, the concern isn't so much that the speech uh, interferes with administration of justice by being offensive. It's that it might introduce uh, information to the jury that the jury isn't supposed to know. But when it comes to offensive speech, when it's within the litigation process, it really can make it much harder for the parties and the witnesses to deal with each other. But the proposed rule would go much further than that. In fact, it would expressly extend to bar association business or social activity in connection with the practice of law. And the speech that it would ban there is specifically, they call it verbal conduct, but that's just a way of referring to speech that manifests bias or prejudice towards others based on race, sex, religion, national origin, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, socioeconomic status. So as a result, what that means is uh, uh, if, let's say, there is a debate at a um, continuing legal education program, that's where uh, lawyers uh, uh, might uh, go to a program in order to get uh, uh, credit for uh, kind of the recertification every two or three years. Uh, there's a debate on same-sex marriage or on whether there should be limits on immigration from Muslim countries or on whether people should be allowed to use bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity rather than their biological sex. If a lawyer in that debate says things that are seen as manifesting prejudice towards, say, gays or uh, transgender people or towards Muslims, uh, then in that case he could be potentially disciplined. 
Likewise, if there is a social function in connection with the practice of law, say a bar association dinner or something like that, and the people at the dinner have a conversation about this and somebody overhears and is offended, that could lead to, uh, to bar discipline for the lawyers. That can't be constitutionally permissible. And fortunately, uh, all states except Vermont that have passed, uh, uh, that have made a decision on this have decided against adopting this broad ABA proposed version of 8.4G. Only Vermont has so far has adopted it. So let's back up a step because I think that the impetus for this is the desire that lawyers not engage in discriminatory conduct towards clients and in the practice of law. Um, Isn't that kind of the general proposition where this is coming from? Well, um, it's hard for me to tell what uh, the impetus was because, you know, the text is what it is, and presumably there was an impetus for every provision of this. There must have been some impetus for uh, the restriction on speech in bar association or social activities in connection with the practice of law, that's not going to be about protecting clients because clients aren't there, right? Uh, likewise, the impetus is not just to ban discrimination in the sense of people, uh, lawyers refusing to serve clients for various reasons or to protect, again, other participants in litigation like witnesses or court staff or some such. I assume the impetus was to try to suppress uh, speech that manifests bias or prejudice towards others, including uh, in situations where if they are connected with the practice of law, the connection is really quite tenuous. Uh, Well, okay, but um, beyond speech, if I may, you know, as you started to explain it, one of the first things that came to mind was, for example, uh, in past history, it was not uncommon for lawyers, say, to be participants in organizations like the John Birch Society or the Ku Klux Klan, and that mere association could render them uh, somehow subject to discipline. And and I think the same would be true for certain organizations uh, that are considered more progressive. I, I could see cases where, you know, in a more conservative political climate, Uh, someone's association with the NAACP or other civil rights organizations uh, like Southern Poverty Law Center, for example, could render them uh, uh, subject to uh, criticism under this kind of speech code. Well, uh, it could render them subject to criticism, but that wouldn't be prohibited by 8.4G. The new proposal, for all its flaws, does require conduct related to the practice of law. If a lawyer wants to join um, the KKK, or if he wants to join the Communist Party, that's not conduct related to the practice of law. I see. Okay. Got it. So it is somewhat restricted, but it's still regulating speech without... And, and All right. So help our listeners to understand, who are obviously not uh, constitutional experts, there are limitations on any fundamental right, including free speech. But because it's a fundamental right, those limitations have to be because of a sufficiently significant rationale. Explain how that works. Right. It turns out to be complicated. You know, I teach a whole class on the first <laughs> of course. In 50 class hours. And in fact, often even really substantial government interests, even really good justifications were found to be not good enough to suppress speech. For example, you know, if the government says, we're going to ban all advocacy of revolution because because advocacy of revolution could lead to revolution. You know, that's not a ridiculous argument, but the court has said despite that, speech has to be protected even when it advocates revolution. So really, I think the best way to understand this is just to look at what the precedents are with regard to the narrow zones in which speech restrictions are permissible. For example, threats of violence. 
are constitutionally unprotected if they are perceived as true threats, as genuine threats and not just hyperbole. Um, libel, generally speaking, knowingly false statements, sometimes negligently false statements that injure a person's reputation, that's unprotected. Likewise, in particular zones of activity, usually tied to particular places or particular particular actions, uh, the government could restrict a, um, a speech if it's part of a government process. So that's why, for example, speech in the courtroom is sharply restricted. As I said, speech in litigation process, which is done sort of in the shadow of the courtroom, might be restricted in various ways. But outside those zones, even if the government says, oh, we have a really important interest, we're trying to change people's hearts and minds, we're trying to get people to stop believing in bad things, we're trying to get people to stop saying things that offend others and may kind of lead them to not want to participate in, in various activities, um, that's generally not enough to restrict speech. And again, there's a lot of case law on the subject. So to the extent that um, speech in connection with the practice of law is considered a type of commercial speech, I'm thinking about, for example, years ago when I participated in some anti-tobacco activities, and of course the tobacco companies insisted their right to advertise was protected by the First Amendment. Um, what sorts of restrictions are permissible? In other words, does commercial speech somehow get less protection than other types so of speech? One of the exceptions that I mentioned uh, that it does exist to the First Amendment is an exception for false or misleading commercial speech. Likewise, there's a zone of even true commercial speech that may be subject to more regulations than non-commercial speech. But it's important to realize commercial speech is a legal term of art. What it means is it is Speech that proposes a commercial transaction, it really means commercial advertising. Speech that is sold in commerce is, doesn't have any lesser protection. After all, newspapers and books are sold in commerce. Of course. Speech that's about commerce um, doesn't have any less protection. Uh, Wall Street Journal um, uh, uh, stock prices, let's say, or something along those lines, uh, that's fully protected as well. Likewise, it's true that the lawyering is a commercial activity and that people do it for money, just like being a newspaper reporter is a commercial activity and that people do it for money. That doesn't make lawyer speech uh, commercial speech as such. Now, there are a bunch of cases having to do with lawyer advertising, and it's true that lawyer advertising is in many places fairly heavily regulated, subject to First Amendment protections, and the state bar is trying to make sure that lawyers don't engage in false or misleading commercial advertising that might, for example, led people into believing that this lawyer can kind of promise success, which is something you can't do. Um, but again, that has to do with commercial advertising. Right. This rule is by no means limited to commercial advertising. And of course, most bar association and social activities associated with the practice of law are not commercial advertising. Well, I have to say my clients are very upset that I cannot promise them success. <laughs> so you say Vermont is the only state so far that has approved this. Um, have we seen uh, that, that is approved the, the broad uh, version of 8.4 that the ABA has suggested? California has recently approved one, but one that is sharply narrowed and deliberately narrowed from the uh, ABA uh, suggested rules. So, in in your view, does the new California rule um, run afoul of the First Amendment, or you think it's okay? you know um, I, I don't want to vouch for all possible applications and all possible facets of it, uh, but it is in many ways uh, uh, much much narrower. Uh, so, for example, it uh, it doesn't mention social or bar association activities uh, related to the practice of law. 
which I think is quite important. More broadly, when it talks about harassment, it talks about in relation to a law firm's operation, harassing employees, applicants, volunteers, uh, and contractors. Uh, so, uh, so it's really deliberately a lot more, a lot more limited, and rightly so. Now, one might still disagree with it. For example, I think that if an employer is acting illegally towards his employees, I think he should be subject to ordinary employment law, whether that no, is a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, um, a, a, a radio station, or anybody else. I don't think there's any reason uh, to bring uh, the bar association into what are basically just disputes between. Uh, law firms and their employees, many of whom might not be lawyers in the first place. The employees might not be. So I'm not wild about the state bar rule, but it's certainly much narrower in the kinds of speech that it restricts. Well, and that also brings up kind of the balance that just because someone complains about harassment or discrimination, often there are factual disputes. And uh, yes, these are covered by employment laws. That's what uh, my bread and butter is. But I'm also aware that somehow punishing law firms or taking away people's uh, right to practice law because of these disputes seems uh, rather harsh. Well, um, I think that's right. But there are two separate questions here. One is, what do you do about disputes? And presumably the bar would have to resolve those disputes, too. The bar doesn't say, well, discipline you just because somebody's made an accusation. It would have to investigate it, too. So then there's a question of what the right sanction is, what the right punishment is. That should it, uh, if there is a finding, should it just be damages through the normal court system or should there also be some sort of professional discipline? Um, I'm inclined to say that there's no particular reason to add professional discipline for an employment dispute uh, um, beyond uh, what uh, employment law currently provides. Uh, but that, I think, is true, even if it's not going to be terribly harsh. You know, generally speaking, I have to admit, it's not like bar associations are kind of very eager to uh, expel members, to disbarred them, or even to suspend them based on, uh, based on relatively uh, minor accusations. Professor Volokh, we're way out of time. I appreciate your being with us today. We've been talking about new rules for lawyers, ethical rules and their implications which may very well impact clients as well. And we'll keep you posted on how this develops. Thank you so much for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. My pleasure. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.